This episode is brought to you by TwoLinedMusicCutStore.com. TwoLinedMusicCutStore.com is your all access to culture. Check out cultural merchandise like leggings, hats, mini boxing gloves, and bags. Also, t shirts like hip hop, nature, rock bands, reggae, and dark fantasy. Fast shipping worldwide. That's TwoLinedMusicCutStore.com. Now, let's check out this episode. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Cuts Entertainment Report podcast. And today, we have a real special guest in the building. Listen, this man is a singer, the songwriter, and a producer from the Big Mountain Band. You know we have in the building today? We have Kino in the building today. What's going on, Big Boss? Hey, Muscle. Really nice to be with you, brother. Um... You know, I'm in San Diego right now at, uh, at my mom's house. I, I, li- I actually live down in Ensenada, Mexico, which okay. is about um, it's about two hour drive south uh, from here. But uh, but I got a lot of business, a lot of going on, a lot happening, man. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because we like to get in from where it all started to what's going on in 2021. So my first question for you is this. Where did you grow up? And what type of child were you? You know, I uh, I grew up uh, a lot of time right here in this house. Uh, it's East San Diego. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very multicultural community. I'm mm-hmm. uh, very happy to say uh, I went to a school, lots of representation um, ethnically from a very diverse African-American, uh, different types of Latino, mostly Mexican. There's a large Southeast Asian population here. Um, Vietnamese, we're, we're, I think that's the largest Vietnamese community in the United States is right here in this neighborhood. So I grew up eating lots of Vietnamese food coming up. Um, you know, I I, uh, I had a really fast and interesting young childhood. Mm-hmm. And I came here to San Diego when I was about seven years old. Uh, my my biological father had just passed away. My mother's full-blooded Mexican. My biological father uh, was, you know, gringo, white, white, Anglo. And um, and then my mother um, married an African-American man. And he raised me from the time I was, I was um, about nine years old. Okay. And so I had, uh, you know, I, I really had a, a rich... I'm very fortunate to have a, a, a rich palette of experience in, when you're talking about, you know, culturally. Mm-hmm. And growing up, what did you think you were going to get into? What do you want to be when you became older? Or what did you think you were going to become? You know, I, I always had hopes. Music came into my life early on, especially, well, I, I grew up, my, my grandfather um, on my, my mother's father, he played violin. He was born in Mexico. Um, he was a musician. He had two other brothers that uh, were also musicians. He played violin. They played regional music. Um, we just lost Vicente Fernandez a couple days ago, one of our Mexican icons. Um, he was charro mariachi music. They, they did a lot of his type of music. But songs like corridos and boleros, a combination of music that um, they used to entertain the farm workers. He came um, as an immigrant, uh, worked as, you know, started off picking vegetables and slowly but surely was able to save enough to um, buy a farm. That was my first experience um, in music, is crawling around 
um, the dance floor and, and people dancing all over the place. It was a, it was a very, very rich immigrant, a Mexican immigrant experience. And then the next big musical experience came when my mother uh, remarried and, and my stepfather, Lorenzo Gunn, he was a big lover of, of black music. And so the, all of a sudden the house was filled with, oh man, Miles and Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and mm. um, Earth, Wind and & Fire and then eventually Bob Marley. And that was pretty much it, man. When, once I heard Bob, it was like, well, this is me. You know, I just I just knew that uh, I was never going to be the same. And, and, and I, I really pretty much knew, I didn't admit it at that point, but I knew what my dream was at that point. Okay. So what did other people, what did your parents want you to get into at this time? Yeah. You know, I, I think my parents have always kind of been sort of uh, very supportive. Um, you know, of course, my mom would have liked me to finish college before I got started with music. It, it didn't happen that way. But for us, things started happening really quickly. You know, I was I was still uh, very young um, when when just things just started happening. Uh, we had a lot of luck and a lot of momentum. Reggae was very obscure still, and we were one of the very first bands to start writing and, and recording music um, in in this area. So there re we didn't really didn't have a lot of competition. <laughs> we didn't have to we didn't have to be that good to set ourselves apart, you know, from the pack. And um, yeah, it was you know, I mean, it, it uh, my, my my parents enjoyed the ride is is as much as i do and, and my mom is always you know has always been there's been a lot of rough times you know you being a parent you never want to see your your child having a tough time the music business is tough man it, it's mm -hmm. rough and it can and it can really work on your mind and work on your pocketbook so you know you, you don't you don't want to see your kid do, going through that but you you know I, I think she's been very happy to see me live my dream right through there and what were your first steps towards music now because you said you didn't admit it at first so then when you said okay i want to get into music what were your early steps to get into music you know we i remember i i somehow i came across a conga drum i always associated reggae with the drum mm -hmm. and i started playing drum early on and i remember lunchtime in high school we started having a little drum circle and we would play and we'd, we'd, you know, we would jam. And then that led to starting a little band um, in a house not too far away from here. Um, you know, my parents had to listen to us in the afternoon, uh, practice our little set. And, and I remember we only had two songs. And it was funny because at that point, the guy that I was that I was playing with, my cousin, who is still my best friend to this day, he, he was the drummer, but the guitarist, he wanted to play rock. So... We didn't know any other guitars, so we had to compromise. <laughs> so the first two songs we learned were Bob Marley Stir It Up mm -hmm. and uh, Iron Man by Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not a bad starting point at all, you know. <laughs> so and I can remember my mom saying after a couple of months, um, son, you know, you guys don't sound too bad, but can you please learn more material? <laughs> And what was the name of that band? You know what? I don't even remember. It's funny because I ran into the, the guitarist. He found me somehow down in Mexico. And I saw him not too well. It's been already a few years, but you know, we, we went back. I, I don't I don't think we ever really 
I can't remember if we ever came up with a name, but, uh, you know, we're talking, this is like uh, probably 15, 15, 16 years old we were. So that would have been around 1981. Mm -hmm. So you guys started out there. And when do you, were you playing drums? Were you singing? What were you doing in the band at this time here? At that point, I was just singing. I picked up guitar probably when I was about 19 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, 20, actually, yeah, right around 20 years old. I started off as a percussionist. My, my, my cousin played trap set. Um, and I started out, you know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal or the money to, to buy a guitar, but, you know, to get a set of bongos and some wood blocks. And I was already hip to reggae percussion. You know, I was, I was, I remember seeing Seiko. Um, somehow we got a hold of some live footage of Bob and and uh, we started to see you know some of the percussionists come through and and my first gig was my first gig in a real band was basically singing background uh, it was a band called Cornerstone okay and uh, and yeah that was that was the beginning and that's when I found out I could harmonize and they you know they really didn't let me sing any lead vocals back then but boy that that i remember that vocalist really liked the way i harmonized mm -hmm. and how did you connect with from there to rainbow warriors you know that was um that was actually after cornerstone mm -hmm. i took a trip to hawaii okay me and a good buddy we went and backpacked hawaii for for several months and um my cousin he had ran into a couple of guys, a guitarist and a keyboardist from Germany. Um, and he said, hey, I got a band uh, going over here and we want you to sing lead vocals. So come back from Hawaii. <laughs> so <laughs> I did. And that, uh, that was the beginning of, um, that was the beginning of Rainbow Warriors. And, uh, and then Rainbow Warriors evolved into Shiloh. Mm -hmm. And then Shiloh recorded a, um, a full album in 1990 mm -hmm. and we've later found out that the name Shiloh was already owned actually by Don Henley of the Eagles okay that was that was gonna be the name of the Eagles in the beginning and they decided to change it to I mean change the name from Shiloh to Eagles but he he retained the name and we got a, a message from one of his associates saying you guys can't use that name Don Henley owns it so we were at the time we were very involved with this um, activist cafe on U the UCSD campus, University of California San Diego, and um, it was just a real radical place. We were really into politics. We were really into changing the world. Reggae music had really galvanized us, you know, and and uh, and you know, seeing the the all the Jamaican artists that came through, you know, back then. Um, Reggae, reggae concerts consisted of speeches, you know, like Peter Tosh. He always used to bust out and make a speech right in the middle mm -hmm. of it. You know, we got, we, we really got inspired by that sort of activism. I mean, I'm very much post-Vietnam, you know, marches. And we, I came from that. My, my, my aunt, one of my greatest mentors, she's a big feminist, a big activist. And, you know, we got into black nationalism, into Chicanismo. It was just a very exciting time. And uh, and people were fired up. People were fired up. People were marching. People were very vocal, and it was really important to study. And then reggae music, you know, infused that. Mm 
So the Che Cafe, we ended up starting to do some benefits for a struggle, a Native American struggle. Mm -hmm. Some people in northern Arizona, um, indigenous people, uh, Navajo, but the real name of the Navajo is Diné. Yeah. And they were getting relocated off of their land. There was a mining company that was forcing them off their land. And we got involved in the struggle. We were inspired. We started taking trips up to Big Mountain over to Arizona and taking, you know, uh, uh, supplies up there just to help them with the struggle because they were they were resisting uh, relocation and the name of that movement was Big Mountain mm -hmm. so we decided to adopt that name right there so even before we go even to Big Mountain because you said you recorded your first album with Shiloh yeah how did that album do for you guys you know it did really well um, in in the college circuit it it, it, uh, it got a lot of uh, attention we toured to Hawaii as Shiloh. Okay. Um, and and the, the, there was a song on the first Big Mountain album called Touch My Light. We recorded the original version on the Shiloh album, and then we re-recorded it for Big Mountain. And that was our first hit. Um, but it was on Shiloh as well, and it, and it, did, it did really well, you know. Um, it, um, it really inspired a lot of people in Hawaii. I mean, we were pretty much the first non-jamaican band mm -hmm. reggae band right to tour hawaii and it it you know what i mean it was like <clears throat> you you listen to jamaican music right jamaican reggae we were we were just doing our we were just doing our best to sound jamaican <laughs> of course we were we were falling far short but mm -hmm. but whatever we brought to hawaii ended up inspiring a lot of people because the next time we came uh there was all kinds of reggae bands and it was just like a couple years later and there was, you know, you, you have to see, you know, until sometimes you have to see the possibility, right? And you think, oh, well, I can go see reggae and I can see Jamaicans play, but that music isn't for me, right? Mm -hmm. And then you see some American kids, young kids from California with dreads up there playing the reggae music. And then all of a sudden it, it makes you realize, you know what? Yeah, I can play this music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, you start to break down those blocks and people's people's minds and at this time did you guys ever go to jamaica yet or you were just living through the cassettes through the music that you heard and everything at this point here yeah no we we, we went to jamaica for the first time in 1994 we played reggae sunsplash okay so let's back up let's not even go with, okay so as shiloh okay. you didn't so you yeah didn't shiloh, shiloh came out in 1990 mm -hmm. uh shiloh the, the name of the album was california reggae mm -hmm. and then um so then we changed the name you know and we and basically we we had never traveled outside of california well no we did we did do one nationwide tour in 1990 actually that the year that it was um and you know but it was still very a sparing uh tour you know a lot of people i mean music, reggae was so obscure it still wasn't you know something that they you heard in clubs a lot but we did go to uh cincinnati and we, and we we played on the barge for a whole month one summer and um and then we came back to california and things kind of died down for a second and we were we started playing a, a circuit in california and maybe touching a little bit of colorado and stuff like that and then i met my current manager bruce kaplan and he's the one that started the whole movement into into the big mountain uh, era right there and right now big mountain when you guys were formed and everything who were the members in the band at that time there 
The original Big Mountain album, the first Big Mountain album, uh, consisted. It was a gentleman named Gregory Blakeney on drums, um, uh, Mike Llewellyn on bass guitar. Gregory Blakeney was African American gentleman. Mike Llewellyn um, was, uh, you know, a, a, a one a younger guy. He was a younger bass player. He's actually the one that came up with the the Touch My Light bass line. Okay. Um, that was that was really cool. And then the. The, uh, the the two German gentlemen that are the original members of um, Rainbow Warriors, Manfred Reinke um, and uh, Freddie Winter, and uh, and then me. At that point, my cousin John had moved up to uh, the Bay Area, and he he kind of missed out on that whole that whole era. But he was the drummer in in Rainbow Warriors, so that kind of made the the shift there so that that was the lineup for the shiloh album uh, for the for the no for the first big mountain album for the first big mountain so okay you guys have big mountain you guys are everything did you guys get signed first or you guys recorded an album and then got signed we recorded an album and then got signed okay what was the name of that was that the wake up album that was the wake up album mm -hmm. correct 1992 mm -hmm. How did that album start doing for you guys then? It took off. The song Touch My Light ended up like top five in all of Los Angeles radio that year. Um, it was really interesting because we did two versions. We did a, a version in English and a version in Spanish. They were both on the album. And it just started to bubble in radio. But then there was a guy, There's a there's a town called El Centro that's directly east of San Diego here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in the desert. And a DJ, back then, you would put, you would get a CD or an LP, and you would record it on a piece of tape in the radio station, and then they would make, they had their own cassette, like eight tracks, right? So all of the songs that they wanted to just play quickly, they could pull it out of this uh, eight track. It was basically this eight track thing, and then they'd shove this thing in, and and it was the single. It was just like one song, and they they could change the tape, right? There were these cassette. There were these eight tracks that you could open up. Well, he got the tape, and he made a Spanglish version. He got the English version and the Spanish version, and he sliced it up, okay. and that took off. It that they ended up taking off in that station. And then directly north of that is actually where my mother grew up, a town called Coachella, and then Indio, and then a radio station picked it up there. And then the feed started to, you know, bleed into Riverside. And then from Riverside, it went to Los Angeles. And it was the strangest thing because the song was just, you know, it's just this little reggae song, man. <laughs> it's got a whole bunch of reverb on it. You know, we made it sound kind of poppy and big sounding because they because of the mix. Um and it ended up just catching fire in Los Angeles, impossible to escape. And the producer, well, leading, leading on in the story, the producer of Baby I Love Your Way got caught wind of the song, and one thing led to another. Okay, so then this is when you guys signed with um, Giant slash RCA. Um, Giant slash Warner. That's another interesting um, development because... What happened was the producer of um, the producer of Baby I Love Your Way was also the director of the Reality Bite soundtrack. The Reality Bite soundtrack was on RCA. In mm -hmm. the at the time we were we were already negotiating with Giant. They were a subsidiary of Warner, mm -hmm. 
and but uh, so we weren't able to sign to RCA. We had to, we had to, you know, we had already kind of um, signed some sort of confidentiality clause with uh, with Giant, but uh, but the, in the Reality Bites movie, the Peter Frampton version was in the movie, okay. and the producer Ron Fair is his name. He came up with the idea: let's try to do a reggae, let's do a reggae version of this. Reggae was the new thing, mm-hmm. and. Um, he sent out, you know, to the, the, his feelers, and and he got some demos back. We were the one of the groups that were asked to submit a demo, and we got the gig. Hmm. So it was the song for the movie first, and then the album, or was the album and then the song? Well, it was, it was, it was, um, it was the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It was a cool soundtrack. That movie, Reality Bites, was supposed to be sort of the 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 movie that that explained Generation X. It was a Generation X sort of esque movie. Mm-hmm. And I sort of had a blend, you know, this this is when our first little taste of hip hop were really started to get, you know, rap and hip hop and loops and stuff like that mm-hmm. started to really get accepted by the industry and, and became mainstream. Um, Lisa Loeb's song was on there, but then they had some stuff like My Sharona by The Knack um you know just some some re- it was it was a very interesting cross section of uh of, of of different types of music a little bit of old and then and then some very contemporary stuff some alternative stuff some hip hop Winona Ryder was in the movie Ethan Hawke Ben Stiller was the director so uh so it was it was part of that soundtrack and then RCA allowed it to be on our first album with Giant Records Mm-hmm. Okay, so then now this is where the party really starts for the band right now. This is the Unity album. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now at this time here, do you guys record any music in Jamaica at this time as yet? No. No, we were still recording all of our stuff. At that point, all, all of the uh, Unity album, for the most part, was recorded in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. At this uh, studio called Music Power no, no longer exists, but... Um, yeah, yeah, it was you know it was it was still us producing stuff. We had some Jamaican influence. There had been some art, you know, some of our some of the um, some of the people that were in Big Mountain at that point had had played with Jamaican artists, primarily the guitarist, um, uh, my friend Jerome Cruz, who, who we lost a few years ago. Um, he had he had started playing with uh, a lot of different groups, mainly like Alton Alice, Leroy Smart. Um, and he brought a lot of knowledge to the band about the fundamentals of reggae and the right way to play, you know, just the authentic, um, style of reggae and how to play reggae with more of a Jamaican, uh, base to it. So, um, so he was, he was big in our, in, in us being able to kind of transcend out of what a lot of bands were playing, which was this, you know, just very detached white reggae you know kind of like the 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 whole police sort of thing you know there was a lot of that going on and uh, we definitely wanted to do something more authentic than that okay so then now you guys have this album you guys have this song you guys are signed to a major where did this baby i love you wait now where did that take you guys what did that do for you guys career right then now well we uh 
you know, it, it, it took off. Mm-hmm. Within a month of it coming out, it was all over the radio in Southern California. And, you know, um, I think it came out in March. By the time June came around, we were touring in Europe. Um, we were doing pretty much promotional tours at that point. But we did this big promotional tour where we went to, you know, a bunch of countries, England. We played Top of the Pops. We went to Germany. We went to France. We went to Spain. We went to Italy. Then we flew to Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Um, Then we went to to Mexico. Um, And then that summer, uh, August, we ended up playing uh, Reggae Sunsplash. Now, we played Reggae Sunsplash with the first album. Okay. We were already recognized by um, by the Reggae Sunsplash tour that was touring all over. Um, and we, in 1992, we, o- we, were, we were the opening band for Reggae Sunsplash, and we played about a good 20 dates all around the United States um, with Touch My Light uh, as, as our single. Okay, and who else was on the tour as a Reggae Sunsplash tour at this time here now? Oh, man, it was, you know, Freddie McGregor, Marcia Griffiths, Judy Moat, Shinehead, Tyga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was an amazing group. I mean, it, there there was a core there was a core group of people that 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 were part of Reggae Sunsplash, and Marcia Griffiths and and Freddie McGregor were always there, and they were sort of like the mother and father of Reggae Sunsplash. Man, they were they were. You know, they, they were they were an institution and and we ended up touring with them, um, you know, f- for uh, for four years straight. I mean, Freddie and Marcia were, were aunt and uncle. And uh, and then so then we played in Japan 1994. After that big tour, we joined um, Freddie and Marcia and we were closing the show. <laughs> and they're in Japan was steel pulse third world beanie man and it was like and i i just it was just so intense and i was so nervous and i was embarrassed actually why would you say that because i was you know all of my heroes were opening up for me and uh and we were just this little band from california man we sucked you know what i mean it was just you know we had to get good after that uh, we were forced to get good um, because, you know, it, it, there was just no way we could keep up with them, man. It was, we had all these amazing school bands, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it, it was, it was, it was hard. It was hard to accept that we were at that moment, we were the flagship reggae band in the world. And I just felt it was so strange that we were from California and I was representing Jamaican music all over the world. It was just, it was a little too much for me to wrap my head around. At that time there. So what was it like when you first, now you had done the California, you'd done all that stuff as the band. Now, what was it like now when you met other Jamaican artists that these are the real deal? What was that feeling like? Well, you know, Jamaicans can be intimidating sometimes, man. Um, it, It depends, you know. Mm-hmm. Freddie McGregor, beautiful. Marcia Griffiths, angelic. Mm-hmm. Um, very supportive and, um, you know, always there. 
to help you through a tough time and to give you advice, always open. Mm -hmm. And then you had other characters. I don't want to name any names, but rude boys. They would mm -hmm. call you out. You know, back then it was like, you know, you had to have your shit down, man. You had to read the Bible. You had to know your history. You had to know, you had to read the Kevin the Gast and shit like that. You had to know who Heidi Selassie was, who Marcus Garvey was. You had to know, you know, all of the, 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 you know, the, the phrases in, 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 um, what is it? Uh, the, the last book, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the old Testament, the, uh, Revelation. anyway, you know, just the, all that, all, all of the phrases that, 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 uh, signified the, the, the divinity of, of Haile Selassie. Right. So mm -hmm. it was intense. You had to rehearse that shit because if somebody came up and you, you know, they would call you out. They said, mm -hmm. you, you know, you believe Jah is God and you believe Haile Selassie is God, you know? Mm -hmm. You you had to you had to if you either had to say Haile Selassie was the reincarnation of Christ, or you had to really fucking know a way to to talk your way out of it, you know? And it, that was just that was just the way it is. Mm -hmm. it, politics was intense. Everything was very intense. We're, this is post Vietnam. We're talking, you know, the middle of the Cold War, communism, capitalism, um, you know, black nationalism. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, uh, it, it, Reagan era. It, it was intense, and people were very vocal, and they would call you out. Mm -hmm. At this time here, did you ever get a chance to work with somebody like um, Sly and Robbie at this time here? At that time, no. Two years later, we would be in the studio with Sly and Robbie. Okay, so let's not, because this Reggae Sun Splash Tour is a very important part of who you guys are here. So you guys did U.S., you did Japan. Where else did you go with the tour? Well, we, we concentrated most of our touring in the United States and Asia um, at that time, um, you know, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we toured um, a lot in, in the islands. We went to Guam. We went to Australia a couple of times. We went to uh, Thailand, Malaysia, um, and then again three big, huge tours. The last, the last reggae sunsplash was uh, one of Dennis Brown's last last tours. That was that was amazing touring with him. But but he was in a he was already really sick, you know. Um, and um, and then we would break off and we would do our own touring in um, in Europe. But reggae sunsplash, we never went to uh, Europe with Reggae Sunsplash. Um, they, they had been there a, a few years before we came aboard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then this is you guys is, you guys are doing a lot of crazy stuff right now. So then now, for the next two years, you guys are touring around. So then when do you get into the studio now with Sly and Robbie? Especially, I want to hear with Robbie because Robbie just passed the other day. I want to know your experience with somebody like Robbie. You know, it, it was, it would, we, we, we really just got to buck up with him in the studio. You know, the way studio works, it, it was a, it was a song called Caribbean Blue. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked with a producer, Handel Tucker, and we kind of, we kind of just missed them. I mean, they were walking out as we were walking in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I never really got to, uh, got to get to know Robbie. Um, I, I, I know I, I've been in the studio since with Sly. Mm -hmm. um, and and Sly was just helped us with his last album, so I know Sly a lot better. Um, but you know, it, it was obvious. Caribbean Blue was one of those songs where you just you know realize how huge these people were thinking and how ahead of their time. You know, a lot of people don't know that 
Sly and Robbie set up all of UB40's tracks, right? Um, the Labor of Love. Um, they they would pretty much set the groove up, and then UB40 would you know do the you know would 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 stick to that to that uh, template, so to speak. Okay. Um, you know, they did, Robbie Shakespeare is is so huge. I'm such a big fan, and I've you know I've always listened to to his uh, to his amazing interpretation, and it's just 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 one of these incredible innovators that um, that, that that comes around that just makes it seem so simple but it's so complex because you know he's 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 playing he's playing all over the place the click mm -hmm. is there but it kind of really doesn't matter it, he's mm -hmm. playing with a feel that's kind of going in and out of the beat um and that 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 type of feel was was something brand new uh for music that type of syncopation mm -hmm. and 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 you know they were the ones that of course you know, Family Man is probably the guy that invented reggae, but Sly and Robbie, they really took it to um, to a new level in, in terms of being able to make it commercial. Mm -hmm. No, a completely different stratosphere altogether. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ooh, ooh baby, I love your ways. Oh, your next follow-up single was um, Get Together. How did that do for you guys' career at that time there now? You know, that was the beginning of the end uh, for with Warner giant and um they pretty much shelved that record we were very frustrated at the time you know we felt that they they, they gave up on the single three weeks in um you know we, we 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 of course took it personally we didn't realize what was happening to the record industry at that time at that moment the whole piracy era was starting and record companies were freaking out because the price of the CD just deflated overnight. Uh, I bought my first CD burner in 1995. Baby, I Love Your Way came out in 1994, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time we were working with Sly and Robbie on the second album, mm -hmm. they were already feeling the heat. By the time the third album came around, they were shaking in their boots because they saw sales plummet. And, you know, it was our bad luck. Uh, we had great luck in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it was our bad luck that we that we ran uh, smack dab into that technical challenge that, 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 that kept the reggae, I mean, kept the record industry mm -hmm. pretty much um, in shambles up until, you know, maybe five years ago when Spotify actually started to, make streaming the platform you know they, they there was no platform to sell for 15 years record companies could not make any money um except for a few small um you know artists uh there you know that they, they, they could focus in on or artists they were just so big the michael jackson's of the world um you know, it, it, it just it just disrupted everything, and it's still not easy to sell music. But um, but those years were were tough because all of the all of the royalties dried up, and there were, the only way to make money was in live performance, and record companies didn't have money for tour support. It, it was it was the dark ages, man. It was the ice age of the music business at that time there. Absolutely. And, 
you know, it, 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 the writing was on the wall and it, it just, it just fucked everything up, man. And, and, you know, I didn't, I got, I got royalties in 1995 mm -hmm. and I did not, receive any more royalties until about 2012. And you were signed to a major with massive songs? Well, that's the problem is that, you know, that they would give us money for these record budgets, but then you had to recoup that, right? So by the time we only did three albums with Warner, but by the time we were done with Warner, you know, we were in debt to them over half a million dollars. It took forever to pay that back <laughs> when, when you can't sell music, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and they don't start paying you royalties until, they until you're, you're, you know, until you're paid off. Mm -hmm. So when did um, Santa get involved with the um, band? Santa um, was with us for that, la the album with Get Together. That's Santa playing the drums on Get Together. Um, and he recorded one album with us. Um, it was kind of like 96, 96 and 97. Mm -hmm. Because the amazing thing with that, remember, Santa, he played with Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff and all this. So the same person that you looked Peter up to, Tosh, Bob Marley. Yeah. Yes. I oh, now yeah. have I, this I saw, man in my I band. Saw Santa, I saw Santa play with Peter Tosh. Mm -hmm. uh, this would have been 1983, 84. And uh, eleven years later, he was in my band. Yeah, it was it was really a trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's crazy. Just to even think how that could happen. I'm seeing you on TV, and now we're touring together as one unit. That's that's a mind that's a mind trick right there. It it was it was all so total surreal. Everything that happened, mm -hmm. you know, Steel Pulse was so important. Steel Pulse and Third World were really important to us. Okay. Because there was a fusion going on with those bands that, that really helped us develop a sound that people in the United States would gravitate to. Mm -hmm. Because Jamaican reggae was, was still too stiff um, for people to dance to. People didn't know how to dance to reggae. And so... You know, uh, Steel Pulse and and Third World, they had already they had already shown us how to mix R and B mm -hmm. and reggae and to add the elements that would make it easier for American ears to accept. And and then and then nineteen ninety four they're opening up for me in Japan. There was, you know, that that was probably the biggest shock to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, by the time Santa came around you know, it, it, uh, I was already a little bit more acclimated to all of the miraculous, <laughs> you know, stuff that was, that was happening around me, but still it was, I was very intimidated with Santa. You know what I mean? It was, it was great having him in the band. I wish I could, you know, I would like to, you know, I, he's still my good friend and, and, uh, and I love working with him, but back then it was really hard for me to convey what I was trying to say, he was just too big. I, 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 I was too intimidated to ask him to do anything. You know, I, I, I pretty much would just wait for him to do what he was going to do. So basically let him take the lead type of thing and then you'll just follow. Yeah. It, it was really hard for me to produce Santa and tell Santa, listen, this is what I want to hear. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it, it, I just felt totally inadequate. Mm-hmm. I get that 100%. You talk about tours and shows and all this stuff right across the globe. Tell me three of your most memorable moments on stage. Three shows that you'll never forget. Well, that show um, in Tokyo, it was in front of 50,000 people. And uh, like I said, it was this huge lineup. Buju. Uh, Steel Pulse. I mean, it was just such a big lineup. And on top of it, it was in the middle of a typhoon. Wow. And I can remember that they had these tarps. They had the, they had tarps um, covering the whole stage. Mm-hmm. And there was these guys with bamboo ropes pushing up the tarps to try to get the water because <laughs> the water was, the tarps were holding the water. And they had these huge bamboo poles because the, the tarps were really high up there. And um, I was playing guitar, holding a mic, <laughs> and everybody's thinking, everybody around me, I was kind of ignorant of it, but everybody around me thinking, this guy's going to fucking get electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was so frustrated and mm. I was so mad because I just thought we had a horrible show. And we get in the bus, and it's just pouring outside, and we're all wet. And I'm crying, and David Hines turns around from Steel Pulse. David Hines, he goes, yo, boss, relax. It sounded fine. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, shut the fuck up. You know, it was like, what what can I expect? You just did a set in in the middle of a typhoon, man. You kind of had it. it, You had the odds against you, bro. Straight goods. Two more shows that you'll never forget. Um, Brazil. We played this soccer stadium. Um, Ziggy. And this was the Melody Makers, right? Ziggy and Steve and the uh, Sedella and um, Sharon. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lucky Dubé. Inner Circle. Um, oh, and then Olodum. This mm-hmm. great Brazilian samba reggae band mm-hmm. they play reggae but with samba instruments and they you know so we would in brazil was such a trip and we did this big tour called ruffles reggae that whole tour was amazing but but the soccer stadium was probably filled with about seventy-five thousand people mm-hmm. ziggy closed that night i can't remember if who if we played before ziggy or, or, or if inner circle did because inner circle and us we we kind of go back and forth Mm-hmm. And we played till like two o'clock in the morning, and then Olo Doom starts playing. They played till five in the morning. I had never experienced anything like that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and it was just an amazing. We had been there in 1994, and it was so. It's interesting the power of reggae and how reggae, how fast reggae can transform. Because sure. I remember going to Brazil, and nobody knew what the hell reggae was in 1994. We did this promotion tour, right? And I think we did a we did a performance, and and people were just kind of still looking at us like, well, what's this music, right? Um, and I know Jimmy Cliff had, had already started to play there, and it, probably anything that people knew of reggae at that point was Jimmy Cliff. But Jimmy Cliff had such a crossover type of sound, right? And he did a lot of R and B and Rocky kind of stuff. So I think they kind of mistook uh, his music for just being pop music, right? Uh, but by the time nineteen 
90, I think it was 95 when we went for Ruffles Reggae. We were filling up stadiums, man. Mm. And um, I can remember I really hit it off with Lucky Dubay. Um, and we would, and it was kind of like, and the reason was, was because I was just so just you know it was it, it, it you know i love just being around jamaica's because you, you got to understand there would be this tour going on <laughs> 70 people right and it's like that's like 60 jamaicans and then 10 americans us <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i would just hide in my hotel room man I just couldn't take it. And it was just every, and, and they were all, they all knew each other. They were all part of the music business. They were all friends. And we just felt like fish out of water, man. You know? And I remember back then, another embarrassing thing, like we would go to Japan and the Americans, we would go right through customs, man. They would just high five us. And the Jamaicans, man, they would take three hours to get out of customs. And it's just like, and that, there was all kinds of things going on like that that mm -hmm. really embarrassed me. Um, and Lucky Dubay was like, he just wasn't Jamaican. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, and he, and I just kind of clung to him because he was just such a sweet man. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, and he was just so smart, so intelligent. And I just remember, I just loved the conversations. And whenever I would find him in the mm -hmm. lunch hall, you know, I would go sit next to him and talk to him, and, and it, it, we just really bonded. And and I never got to see him ever again after that. You know, we never were able to coincide on a tour, but mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I was so devastated uh, when when you know when he was killed because I, I always thought that we were going to be able to bond again. You know, and mm -hmm. and link up. Was there any conversation in particular you remember having with a Lucky Dubé that you'll never forget that really stands out in your mind? I'm going to get killed for this. <laughs> he goes, he goes, well, you know, Lucky Dubé is African, right? Africans, mm -hmm. they got a superiority complex. Um, you know, Africans and Jamaicans sometimes... Jamaicans are real proud people, Africans mm -hmm. are real proud people, and they bump heads, right? And I can remember Lucky saying, yo, man, these Jamaicans, they come up with all kinds of stories, man. The other day, this guy was telling me that Marcus Garvey was a reincarnation of Paul. And, you know, Haile Selassie, I already know that, you know, he's a reincarnation of Jesus, and that so-and-so is a reincarnation of Peter. He goes, where do they come up with this stuff, you know? <laughs> and I'm just sitting here going... Man, that's some sacrilegious shit you just said. I can't say that. <laughs> he goes, you know, and he was, you know, he would say, Haile Selassie's a man. <laughs> you know, anybody can train some lions to not eat you. Um, and then another thing was that he also introduced me to the whole politics that were going on in South Africa, right, at the time. <laughs> Jamaica is very pro Nelson Mandela, pro ANC, mm -hmm. but Lucky Dubé was a Zulu. So, you know, he wasn't down with the ANC. He was in Kata Freedom Party. So, you know, he, I, I never realized that there was any political animosity going on there. And But when, but when he went and, and, you know, the first time in Jamaica, everybody was freaking out. Oh, my God, this guy's amazing, amazing, amazing. And then he did an interview. 
And it was like, now get this guy out of Jamaica. Because <laughs> he started talking shit about Nelson Mandela. And they were like, oh, Nelson Mandela was Peter. Mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela was the reincarnation of Peter. And he goes, Nelson Mandela's my friend. Mm-hmm. And trust me, he ain't the reincarnation of Peter. <laughs> and I'm going, I'm just looking around going, oh, okay. Can you keep it down a little bit? <laughs> Crazy. It's just what you experience when you're on the road and the type of people that you meet along the way. It's so wild. You guys are doing your stuff. So then now, I know for a time when you guys left Warner, is this when you left the music business for a minute at this time here? No. Mm-hmm. We left Warner. The band changed. We had a we had a really tough me and my manager ended up breaking up okay um and just you know i don't want to get into details it's hard to keep a band together man for sure um but i made a big you know at that time i started to meet people um the first person that that i really just bonded with was is my drummer now Mm -hmm. 1997 we were on tour uh paul he was playing with shaggy at the time we ran into each other in um, Amsterdam, and we had met before, but I don't—I didn't remember meeting him. But I remember meeting him in Amsterdam because we were playing in the Melkweg, and there was probably twenty people in the house, and he stood there right in the middle. He does this, and he just did that for like ten minutes, and I'm just sitting there. What is this guy thinking? I already knew hey, this is Shaggy's drummer. Mm-hmm. And I was just so intimidated because he just stood there and just like he was just studying us, right? So we 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 just kind of vibed up at that point and um and we kept in touch. And slowly but surely we just became best friends, you know. And then I I realized that, you know, I wanted him in, in the band. And and um and lo and behold, things just kind of happened, right? Uh, and and then when Santa and Tony uh, Chin um, ended up leaving the band, um, the first person I called was Paul. And my brother, of course, he stuck with me, my brother James. My brother James, he joined the band. He, w- he joined the band as a roadie during the wake-up tour. But by the end of the tour, he was singing background vocals because we lost our guitarist in the middle of the tour uh, in weird circumstances and we needed a background vocalist and I was like yeah James I was going to wait another year before you did that but we're going to buy you some bongos and some wood blocks and cowbell you're now a percussionist uh, but really you're just my background you know say I knew he I knew he could sing I knew he could do it but I knew the politics to try to get him in the band the politics were going to be too intense, right? People were going to feel intimidated that my brother was in the band now. But once the guitarist left, which, you know, he was kind of a little bit of the, the, the political thorn in the band at the time. And he's my good bread. I mean, he, he was, again, I just lost Jerome a few years ago. But hmm. so James ended up going with me. And then we brought Paul into the band. And then Paul, for the most part, we, I trusted him to put the rest of the band together. Um, back then, uh, the first bass player that we started working with, Ace Webb, um, 
uh, the brother of Norris. Norris, the keyboardist of uh, of Third World. He played with us for a couple of years. And then basically the band that is today Big Mountain was put together in 1998. Goofy joined. Uh, Chizzy joined the next year. And then Chizzy went off and played with Family Man, Wailers, for you know for for a few years but now chizzy's back okay. so the band the band that we got today has been together since 1998 except for the bass player mikey who came on like around 2010 um and it was all because of the friendship and just the bonding that paul and i have that, that today you know he's just he's just one of my dearest friends and uh it's just it's just been so fun to share to share this band with him and you know there's been a lot of struggle along the way he left shaggy <laughs> to mm. come <laughs> it's like i will i'll never i'll always feel guilty that he did that you know <laughs> of course shaggy's changed this whole band too now but but he missed all those huge years with shaggy right so and he probably lost out on a lot of money and connections and but but he's he's never ever he's never ever led me to believe anything like that paul loves big mountain and and we've made so much good music together and you know it's just it's just the way the way things run and hopefully well you know i'm feeling good man i'm feeling good that we're going to be able to redeem myself ourselves and the and the whole success because it has been a tough 15 years man it has been the last 15 years have been rough uh but we never give up man we never give up because I know for a time, okay, before we go for your semi-retirement, before we get there, there was one other song you had done in the 90s that was a big song too, was Let's Stay Together. When did that wonder come out? And why did you guys decide to cover that song? It was just one of the songs that we didn't cut. We, we covered everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, was just, it was just what reggae bands did, man. Record companies didn't know how to think out of the box. They didn't understand reggae. Once UB40 came out with Labor of Love, it was like, you know, every reggae band was doing cover tunes. It was just the way, it was a way to easily connect with the audience and kind of like, it, it was, you know, rather than try to make a, an original song a hit, let's, let's, you know, remake something that people are already familiar with. That was all, that was all record companies forcing us. You know, I love the song. I love, I love singing cover songs, but they just didn't they, they didn't have faith in our original material mm -hmm. so cover songs were were uh, sort of a um you know a way to a, a, a way to make their job easier got you all right so then what ultimately led to your retirement and then you go into teaching what led to that situation there you know it, it was it was just, just just got impossible to tour poverty <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know i had kids mm -hmm. And uh, it was a tough decision, but um, we, we, we put out, we, we signed with a Japanese label. Um, we, we recorded four albums with that label starting in 1998 and on into like 2005. Um, and then, um, and you know, the writing was on the wall. It was really tough to tour, reggae music, was not doing good. Tony Johnson of Reggae Sunsplash died in, you know, 1997. Hmm. Nobody was there to really take reggae to the next level. And um, 
you know, that, that was huge. Tony Johnson, when Tony Johnson died, you know, he was just an amazing man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but he was our babysitter. He was like, we were part of this family that, uh, that I didn't realize, you know, was all held together by one man. And, um, so, you know, we did our best. We, 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 we did the, we did a little bit of touring, but without having that really strong network, um, everything fell apart mm-hmm. and, um, and reggae music just took a hit. Um, and I was, I, I'd always, I always wanted to finish my schooling and I just kind of felt like, you know what? I had to tell the guys that guys, I, you know, I'm, I'm going back to school, man. And we're just going to have to rethink this thing. And let's take a break. I needed a break also. It was just too much. The stress of, I was managing the band at that point. We had had a couple of managers that didn't work out. And I did a horrible job of that. You know, being, being a leader of a band, um, it, it's taken me a long time to learn how to do it. It's just not easy when, you know. Um, so, yeah, I go back to school. I started a my um you know to to become a sociologist for the most part and then i got offered this this wonderful job to open up a multimedia department at a high school here in san diego chula vista area and i taught high school for seven years and then i went on and taught elementary school actually i didn't teach music in high school i taught audio recording Mm-hmm. And then I ended up picking up classes like video, which I, I, I always kind of like enjoyed anyway. Um, but uh, but it was primarily an audio recording class and and got to do that for a while. And, you know, it, it was a good time. I, I, I stayed off the road. I My kids were young. Um, so I got to invest a lot of time into them. And. And yeah, I had that wonderful experience working with kids, man, which which is a beautiful thing. But teaching is is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and it was impossible. I thought I could mesh it with music, but but there's no way. It's really hard to be in the music business and be a good teacher at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then um, you know, we I, I did I I did some stuff. I did some obscure stuff. I started to really focus on my Spanish. I really started to do a lot more composition in Spanish. I started to I joined the salsa band. Um, okay. I started to really diversify myself and and um, yeah and, and 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 it was a good time. With always with the idea that we were going to get Big Mountain back together again, but it just it it ended up taking a lot longer than 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 I thought. But it was, you know, it was because just the environment just wasn't there. It was, it, it just it was impossible to tour at that point. And there was no money coming from labels at that point. Labels had to restructure their whole business. How did your ego feel going from a stage with 70,000 people to a classroom with 30 people? How did that make your spirit, your ego and everything feel at that point there? Man, you really know how to ask the questions, bro. <laughs> Shit, that—that's like, uh, yeah, that—that's like a—that's like an arrow straight into the heart, and that's you know, and that touches upon some of the things that were hardest, some of the biggest challenges mm-hmm. psychologically. Um, I had to, I had to wait tables. Mm-hmm. I had to bartend. Wow. Um, 
there was not enough money. J just being a teacher didn't cut it. Um, so I was playing acoustic guitar by hotel pools sometimes. Um, and sometimes like I'd be sitting there and, and I trimmed at this point, I didn't have dread. So nobody really recognized me, but sometimes I would be waiting tables to people and baby, I love your way would come on the loudspeaker in the restaurant. I'd be too embarrassed to tell the people that's me singing that song, you know, um, it's a heavy, heavy thing. I mean, it, now I don't care. Um, but you know, at that point in my life, um, I was having a really tough time reconciling with what, what had just happened to me. And, you know, I was not ready to be the most popular Rasta man in the world for a few years during those nineties, during the, you know, the 94, 95, 96, 97 years. Um, and, um, I trimmed my locks. Mm -hmm. I trimmed my locks in 95. A lot of people don't realize that night. Mm -hmm. Baby, I love came out in 94. I cut off my locks in 95 and I was always very unhappy with Warner. I, we put together these really great albums and, they didn't accept them. They were, it was just too hard reggae for them. They didn't understand it. Um, you know, and I, at that point I knew, I said, Kino, this is not what you wanted. They're, they're, this, they're turning you into a gimmick. You're a serious man. You came into this as an activist. You're a social political artist. And me cutting my locks was a way of saying, fuck you, I want off of this album and I'm going to ruin it for everybody. God. Suicidal, mm -hmm. political suicide. Mm -hmm. Kamikaze. There you go. Um, so I was, I was dealing with a lot. Mm -hmm. The pressure, reggae music was everything to me, man. Mm -hmm. Reggae music was my answer to everything that I had been feeling as a man. You know, ever since when my mother married a black man right and all of a sudden i realized i turn around and i see this fucking world is racist mm -hmm. it you know it, it was hard for me to really understand it until my mother was in love with a black man and and then i had to defend that black man to the world and when he wasn't around people act different than when he was around right mm -hmm. and it was like that galvanized me and reggae music gave me the tool to be able to fight that. Mm -hmm. And then when it got turned into a gimmick, which I know Baby I Love Your Way is a beautiful song and I have no problem singing beautiful songs, but there's more to reggae than beautiful love songs. And that's what the record company didn't understand. And I just said, hey, it's not my time. I gotta just deal with this. I gotta suck it in and I'm gonna get another chance. And that chance is starting next year. <laughs> it, took, <laughs> it took me almost 20 years to figure yeah. out what the hell our next step was. But, um, but now I know, you know what I mean? It's just one of those things. You just give thanks. Um, we're about to embark on a 60 day tour and the dates keep coming in and I'm just going, what's different. I don't know. It's the timing. The people need big mountain right now. So, but those were tough years, bro. Those were tough years. A lot of swallowing, a lot of deep sighs, a lot of kicking myself, a lot of 
blaming myself for not being a better leader, a lot of guilt because I'm, I love my band mm -hmm. and I worry about their family. I want them to be safe and well off and have health insurance, be able to send their kids to college if they want. All of this stuff weighs heavy on my mind. I get it there. And you see, the reason why I like to speak to people like you is you've seen the mountaintop, all pun intended, and you've seen, and then you've seen the low. So to see it from, to hear it from somebody like you is always the best because everybody wants to be a star singing whatever type of music they are. But what really it comes with, that's a totally different ballgame altogether. It really is. Because, you know, record companies make you seem insignificant. They make you seem like, you know what, you need us. We don't need you. Mm -hmm. And it's the other way around. Music business is based upon songs. Mm -hmm. I was just on a meeting yesterday. I had to decide who our distributor was yesterday. I made the decision. I've been talking to a lot of different people over the course of the last few months mm -hmm. who is going to distribute this next album. And, um, and yesterday, this meeting, you know, it was kind of going good. And I'm not going to mention any names, but the guy says, well, you got to understand, this is, today, music is a TikTok-driven business. And I'm like, right then, there, as soon as he said that, I said, and you are not going to sign Big Mountain. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, it's like, it almost sounds like you had an instant flashback to when you were on Warner Days and you felt Absolutely. Like you were being a gimmick. And it's not true. Mm -hmm. Music is based upon great songs. The music business is based songs like Baby, I Love Your Way, songs like No Woman, No Cry, right? Um, these, are, these are songs that find the right timing, that all of everything comes together mm -hmm. um, at the right time. You never know what, when it's going to happen, but you, but you have to just keep trying. You just, you just never give up. But once you get one of those songs, then it's timeless. Mm -hmm. and and baby i love your way is the gift that just keeps on giving the song just will not stop and it relates to all generations and mm -hmm. it just you know um so i know that's not right i know that tiktok is here today yesterday was instagram last week it was facebook it's a passing fad yeah Yes, you have to pay attention to these things. You have to use whatever tools are available, but no, it's not gonna be here forever. Songs will be here forever. Mm. That makes a lot of sense right there. So when did you actually get the bug to say, okay, teaching is cool and everything, we're putting food on the table, but when did that thing that kept gnawing in your heart tell you, say, time to get back in the studio? What was that like? You know, I, I signed up to this uh, new, when the whole digital conversion happened, there was a, there was a few things in Congress that changed. I, when when a song gets, when Baby I Love Every Way gets played on terrestrial radio, radio with antennas, traditional radio, I don't get anything. All of that money goes to Peter Frampton. Mm -hmm. So when the whole digital realm started to come together, Congress passed some law that made it so that the performing artist also gets paid, right? Because re really the only other way that I get paid is 
through the master. But once record companies, I mean, once record sales dried up, that meant that I didn't get paid until, you know, until digital streaming came around. Mm-hmm. And so sound exchange in the beginning, you know, it was giving me 20 bucks a month and then slowly but surely it jumped up and jumped up. And all of a sudden, one day it was like 1500 bucks in one month, man. <laughs> and I was like, 20 to 15. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here going, what just happened? And then it happened again. And then it kind of would go down to 500, you know, and then it would come back up. And uh, once it happened for six months in a row, I was like, we're moving to Mexico and we're, we're getting back into the music business, you know, because I knew that I could I knew that I could uh, have a night with the money I was getting with royalties. I could, uh, you know, my family could could have a nice, comfortable living in Mexico, which is just right there. Mm-hmm. But uh, over here, forget about it. You're not going to, you know, that's it's not enough to to pay rent and feed a family. But in Mexico, you can. So we moved down to Ensenada. And I kept working. I, uh, you know, I, I would hop on the bus on a Monday. And I would, you know, take the bus to Tijuana. I'd cross the border. I'd come spend the night in this house with my folks. My dad was still alive then. And I'd work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Thursday, I would... I would get out of work, I would hop on the San Diego trolley, I would take the trolley down the border, I would hop on the bus and I'd reverse the process. I'd stay Friday, Saturday, Sunday, hop on the bus on Monday. I did that for three years. Wow. And um, and then, you know, came the day when when uh, it was time to, to, to let go of that pacifier, that, that, that educational check and go for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, I, I, I got together with my old manager again, Bruce Kaplan, who all this time, you know, we were in touch because we, we owned Baby All Every Way together and, and all that stuff. All, anything that had to do with Warner and royalties and things like that or any other, you know. So we stayed friends. We made up again. And then slowly but surely, I convinced him to, to come back and, and, and manage Big Mountain. I, I, I wasn't able to find anybody that understood me or understood what... what uh, you know what my what my strengths, what my talents were, and um, so we started working on an album called Perfect Summer. We really didn't know the whole Cali Roots thing started to take off. I didn't like that. Okay. I just didn't want to be in, associated with that. I came from a proud reggae background, a proud reggae tradition with the greats, right? Mm-hmm. And I would have had to come bow my head down and start opening up for these little bands that I just didn't think they understood reggae and I thought that their just their style of music was was just not what I wanted to be involved with it was you know it was more of a sublime thing it was more of a punk thing it was just all white kids Mm -hmm. I was used to playing to a multicultural crowd so so we just we just went for something we we kind of like shot in the dark and we said let's do an album that's kind of like the eagles meets bob marley mm-hmm. we we did a uh, cover of uh reggae got soul which you know we kind of started to study toots he helped us find our way through that record but it didn't resonate it's, it's a cool record mm-hmm. i think there's some really good songs on there that, that that one day will 
will make sense. But, you know, we, we, we didn't have any money. We ended up mixing that record ourselves, me and Bruce, in this apartment in Ensenada, you know, with no acoustics. I don't know how we did it. We almost killed ourselves in the process. <laughs> killed each other. <laughs> but, but, you know, it got me back into things. And, and, and it got me realizing, Kino, music has changed. Um, you got to start listening to kids and you got to start really paying attention um, to what they're doing, right? And what was funny was everything they were doing was stuff I was doing in 1992, right? I mean, I, I went back and I listened to my early records and I, I realized that I, I, I was doing a lot more like toasting, a lot more rap. And I had lost that for some reason because everybody wanted me to sing great songs, right? And I got out of that. Mm-hmm. So once I started to get back into the syncopated, rap-oriented, hip-hoppy, toasted, toasty type of 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 singing, it all made sense. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, I got this. You know, before I was trying to sing, you know, like "Baby, I Love Your Way." I was trying to mm-hmm. sing great songs. Kids, kids don't want to hear that shit. <laughs> kids, there is that "Baby, I Love Your Way" already. It's already yeah. there. Right. And, and 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 now Justin Bieber, he's trying to do things that I was doing back in 1992, right? So I'm going, oh, shit, I got this. And all of a sudden, it just clicked one day. And and I've been on that route now, you know? I, I, I just, it's, you know, reggae today is, is basically, you know, Jamaica swimming through hip-hop waters. Mm-hmm. So wild because there's two two things I want to talk to you about here. I know in 2018 you had a song called you were on CNN speaking about it called Deport Deportation Nation. How did you come up with that song? The whole immigration movement and the defense of, of undocumented people in the United States has always been close to my heart. We had a song in the album with Baby I Love Your Way called Border Town, mm-hmm. um, and that was what 1994. It was a it was a, it was a crazy year as far as border politics goes because that's when NAFTA started. There was a Zapatista rebellion. NAFTA was was horrible for Mexico, um, but it, what what also did it is sort of it sort of was the prototype for the global world that we see today, the global consumer world, right? Because what NAFTA did was it allowed all of these companies to go and build factories right along the border on the Mexican side, take advantage of the cheap labor down there and all of the, you know, uh, different things, money that you save working in Mexico, but then be able to load their trucks and be in the United States in 10 minutes, cross the border, right? So the whole idea of, of outsourcing your production to, a, a, you know, a, a country that's a lot cheaper to manufacture, got started here, right along this border. And they also militarized the border. That was the first time you start seeing military helicopters patrolling the border. And you start seeing Hummers and shit like that, right? Um, So you could tell that there was something going on. I didn't realize what was going on, that, that, you know, they they were basically trapping Mexicans in Mexico to force them to become part of this global market and to keep them in an economic zone yeah but but we wrote this song called border town and 
my Mexican heritage, my Mexican background made me sympathetic to undocumented people, people that are just trying to change their lives. And, you know, you, that, just the, the hypocritical nation of a country that first cannot survive mm-hmm. without at least 20 million undocumented people, right? Uh, we, these, these are, we, we, we can't find people, we can't find Americans that are gonna do a large sector of jobs here in the United States. And so we attract these people here, the jobs are here waiting for them, and then we persecute them. And, you know, so I wanted to expose the hypocrisy of that the best way I could. Deportation Nation was something we did 20 years later that was pretty much along the same topic. But what kind of stimulated that was the caravans that were coming from Honduras. Coincidentally, I forgot to tell you that I lit my father, my biological father, worked for Dole banana and we lived in honduras for two years i spent my sixth seventh year in honduras my brother was born in honduras so i had direct experience with this whole banana plantation concept right and you know i was i was just really touched i was i I felt really emotional seeing these people march all this way and and have to deal with you know just just the, the the trials of 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 making that journey and and but not having anything to go back to because Honduras is an oligarchy state, man. It's a you know, United States has turned that into a concentration camp, and it's all our fault, and it's all for bananas, hmm. you know. And we 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 blame Hondurans for something that we create, right? Because we don't let Honduras have a democracy down there, we have our puppet government installed over there so you know deportation nation is just is it's one of the things that's important to big mountain we're uh message and exposing the wrongs in this world and and doing whatever we can to inspire people to think out of the box and and to really recognize this is what rasta taught me to do rasta rastafari gave me a set of spectacles with which to observe and look through the lies in this world right and and i give so much thanks to jamaican culture because it was jamaican culture that that taught me how to do this that really gave me a backbone you know that 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 taught me how to be a proud political warrior and and to recognize uh the wrongs and 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 use your music to be able to 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 not let that go unanswered you get a great answer Great answer. That brings us up to 2021. I seen you connected with an old friend for a listening party for freedom. You connected again with um, Tommy Cowan. How was that? Oh, I forgot to talk about Tommy Cowan during those. I get how could I forget him? Because he was probably my great. You know, he he wasn't the art. He wasn't the performer, but he was right. He is. Um, he was such a big part of reggae sunsplash. Mm-hmm. Um if I ever was to get into the concert business, I know exactly how it needs to run. It needs to run exactly the way Reggae Sunsplash was. This was a refined operation. Um, if It never went on late. It went on, on time, on the dot, and everybody was on time. And you had to be in the bus, or they would leave your ass at the hotel. Hmm. People got left behind. Wow. Tommy 
was the way to just stitch everything together so it was one seamless show. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was maybe like three or four times when they would let, leave music playing and Tommy would go do something. Besides that, all of the set changes happened when Tommy was there singing and telling jokes and talking to the people. He would entertain the people while the set changes would happen. And the set changes would all happen in no more than 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so Tommy was really important. And um, I can remember when I cut my dreads and I was kind of regretting it. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I didn't regrow my dreads for another 15 years. It, I didn't start growing my locks again until 2011. Okay. Um, and, but I remember, you know, I went to him and I was just kind of like, I was just searching for guidance, which he was always so generous. He, you know, he would tell stories. He would tell me stories of Bob, Bob and Peter. You know, we were so curious. We just wanted to know, we wanted to know so much about the whalers you know, and, and that whole, that whole dynamic, how did, how did these three guys create this amazing music, you know, and what, what was it like? What was it like being around those people? Um, you know, so he was always so generous, but anyway, this one instance I came up to him and I said, man, Tommy, you know, um, I just, you know, I, I felt like I had to explain to him mm-hmm. why I cut my locks. And he goes, you don't have to say anything. He goes, I know why you cut your locks. And I'm here to tell you that you're going to grow them again. Hmm. He goes, and you know, Bob cut his locks twice. So this is nothing new. Don't worry. You're fine. That was huge. Beyond you know what I mean? So how was it connecting with him again to have him listen to your new music from the Freedom album? You know what? He sat down and he listened to every song mm-hmm. and people would come in and he would shush him and he just, you know, and of course, Marcia, you know, I did, we did a lot of touring with, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, oh my God. Carlene, um, his wife, um, who was also just, you know, I, 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 I wasn't as close to her, but was also just always just so beautiful and bubbly and just, and just always so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes they would take their kids, um, you know, on the road and, and they were, they were like the perfect, they were just the perfect family, you know, they were perfect Rasta reggae family you know and um but yeah seeing them again seeing them together seeing their beautiful family um naomi their daughter you know doing her thing mm-hmm. um it uh it was so healing when i went back to jamaica i, I we we hadn't been in jamaica from this time, the last time that we had been in Jamaica was about 2004. And we went, we didn't, we weren't in, in Kingston. We were in the um, Montego Bay in the grill side. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I hadn't been in, in Jamaica for almost 20 years. And my brother went with me. We were back in the studio together, which, you know, I didn't even get into it. The whole, 
he quit the band for a little bit, mm-hmm. which was devastating for me. So this was our first time in the studio together, me and my brother in anchor with Fata, the same engineer that we had with Sly and Robbie and, mm-hmm. and, and just, I'll tell you what, it took so much work, so much focus to piece this project together. Mm-hmm. Um, and reconnecting with, you know, some people, the lead singer of school back then, Limey, um, the keyboardist uh, of, of school, Chris McDonald. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just people started coming in. You know, Chris Meredith and Chinna. I never played with Chinna in a band, but, you know, I've known him forever. He's such a good friend. You know, he was in Soul Syndicate with with Santa and Tony. So he was always around uh, during when they when they were um, when they were in the band. Going back to Jamaica was so healing mm-hmm. and it was so full circle. And this last six months since we finished the album in Jamaica has been like just this one realization after another. And, you know, some of that, some of that ego driven um, shame that I felt mm-hmm. just one by one started to make sense. You know, it was just like, Kino, you feel that cause you care. Mm-hmm. Because this Jamaica, this music that was born out of struggle of people, real life experience, reggae music that was not created, it was squeezed out of oppressed people. Um, That's why you do this. You're not doing this to sing, ooh, baby, I love your way. You're singing it to, you're, this is so much bigger than that. Um, and Jamaica, until you're in Jamaica, you, it's really hard for you to understand what that Jamaican mindset is all about. Mm-hmm. Just that pride and that every Jamaican is a star. We bow down to nobody. We bow down to no one. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it just propelled me, man. And I know it did the same thing to my brother. It was just like one of these things where you say, you know what, we can't, we can't make up for the lost years for all of those years that we were in the wilderness, but thank you, Ja, that I still have my health. I can still sing. And guess what? The songs are coming now Mm -hmm. for so long. I just didn't know what to write. Mm -hmm. I just... You know, it was just so hard for me to formulate. And now, ever since Yard, it just, it, I just, I, I can't stop sometimes. I mean, I, now I'm getting sent rhythms. I bust out that piece of paper and it just starts flowing. Hmm. And that's just life, man. You can't, when, when, you, when, 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 when you're not feeling inspired, you just can't force it, you know? And unfortunately, it happened through. to us for a long time. I just lost it. I just you needed lost to go through the valley 
in order to get back to the mountain. <laughs> That was a that was a big ass dolly. <laughs> but you're right, bro. You're right. You're right, muscle. You 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 hit the nail on the head. You understand. Last one before I get you out of here. We've been talking about all type of stuff. This song, baby, oh baby, I love your way and all that. How to me in the Salman world, this was the big thing when King Turbo played that on a dub plate. That was an amazing time. Another amazing time was when Dynamic counteracted King Turbo playing that in the World Clash. That was another spectacular time. Do you remember <laughs> when you actually recorded those dub plates for those guys? I do. I do. It was early on in the... Um... You know, the whole dub plate uh, world has been, it's just been so much fun, man. Um, I got i got to play some dubs today. Even my mom knows what a dub plate is. Hi, Mama. Yeah. <laughs> she, she has to listen to me sing, ooh, sound boy, you're dead today. <laughs> um, all the time. Um one is it's just been exciting to see this whole thing develop and reg mm -hmm. and realize that reggae is still growing realize that um that there's still there's still you know things to explore um we're still evolving and you know even though music is becoming more mechanically based and um you know and and live music is is seriously being challenged uh today um you know the fact that uh, that there's so many people out there that are living their dream now through this whole DJ experience, and it's important to them, man. Um, when I sing a dub, I, I I do my best to give good quality. I'm really really careful about you know, especially now that that that, that, that you know it's become so refined, and, and and I and I do it quite often. And hey, I, I won't lie, man. My daughter. She just graduated from Virginia Tech mm -hmm. and uh, probably a good amount. And I was paying her rent over there every month. And uh, probably 90% <laughs> of that rent came from dub plate money. For sure. So so it, it's no joke. It's no joke. It's, uh, it's an industry. And it's also a new way to promote um, music. It's a new way to get our new album out um, out there. So, hey, big up to the to the dub scene. Big up to the sounds. Mm -hmm. I love you guys. I believe in you, and um, just so happy that you're taking you know reggae music to diff new frontiers and new mediums and new ways for people to appreciate this music because it all goes back to the same place. It all goes back to Jamaica and it all goes back to Mother Africa. You understand. Conversation, wicked, epic, open conversation, Keno. Thank you so much for bringing us behind the scenes to seeing how you saw it. And you were honest about it. You, you could have gave us the superstar answers, but you gave us the real down to earth, what I really felt when I was on top of my game right there. You understand? Hey, Muscle, you, you are, you give great interviews, brother. Um, you know, I, I, I give so many interviews and I could probably count on both hands. Um, the ones that, you know, that, uh, that, that come close to what, 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 you know, what you did today, 
um, this is really uh, what the nuts and bolts of music business is, and you know, experience. And and I appreciate you letting your listeners in on on this aspect of of the music business because all of the superficial shit, um, it, it's really just flimsy, man. You know, we're we're all we're all fighting through this struggle of finding ourselves and, and being confident and, and being proud of who we are. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a lifelong dedication to growth. And, you know, we want, we want this reggae music to mean something. We want this reggae music to, you know, to contribute to, to our families. And we want this reggae music to help our children develop. I, I see my kids now and, 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 you know, I just know the Jamaican culture has helped them so much. And they're all just revolutionary. They're conscious. They're intellectual. Um, but, you know, they love life. They have fun. But they have that backbone. And it wasn't anything that I lectured them. It was just them being around the scene and them seeing how much I respected the tradition of reggae music, revolutionary music and the way it heals, the way it heals this world. Reggae music has a purpose. And everything that we're seeing today, the Me Too movement, you know, um, just the, the, the cancel culture, all of this stuff started in Jamaica, bro. You know, I know that, I know you know that. The world, um, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around and they're never, you know, they're never gonna give Jamaica their props because we know that there's a conspiracy to just keep Jamaica's influence out of, you know, the, the, nobody wants to give Jamaica the props to Jamaica that or, or recognize them for the influence that they've had in the music business and the music business today. But everything that music is doing today is started in Jamaica, was being played in Jamaica 10 years ago. So, um, yo, uh, it's up to guys like you and me to let people know let people know the truth. You understand. Floor is yours right now. Any big ups if they want to check you out, if they want dub plates, anything right now. Leave some contacts, leave some big ups right before I get you out of here. Well, you know, you can reach me through uh, Instagram. Big Mountain Kino um, is uh, is my Instagram handle. And then Big Mountain Band is the one that, uh, that uh, represents the band um, on the whole. Uh, Facebook, Big Mountain Band. Um, and, um, you know, this tour is going to be really important. I really urge people in the United States to, we need your support. I mean, we, we really, um, you know, we're, we're depending on you to, to show up, to buy tickets, uh, to come. Most importantly, come feel the dance hall with the vibes that we know we can create. Because I think right now in the United States in particular, you know, reggae music is a political music, but it's not about political parties. Mm. Reggae music doesn't tell you who to vote for. Reggae music, reggae music is skeptical of anything. Reggae music is just as skeptical of Democrats as it is Republicans. We don't need anybody to tell us how to think, you know. Um, so I urge everybody that's going through all this political turmoil that we're dealing with here in this country, you know, to really try to understand how these politicians divide us and and 
you know, these politicians are wicked, man. And this is the same thing that Bob Marley was talking about, that Peter Tosh was talking about back in the, you know, uh, PLP and the, you know, Jamaican Labor Party uh, days. Uh, politics is going to make you look like a fool. Ten years from now, you're going to look back and look and say, man, I got ripped off. I got fooled. I got fooled by somebody that didn't work. Politicians don't work. We do the work. The left, the right, the red and the blue, the Democrat, the Republican, we do the work. The politicians, all they do is gossip and create division and and start fires. Hmm. We got to get past that, man. We got to get past that. Big Mom's going on the road. And what you're going to find is you're going to find a loving environment um, that that reminds people that, hey, don't spoil my party. Yeah, politics is important. I'm always going to tell you exactly what I feel, but I'm never going to alienate you. And first and foremost, we come together. Reggae music is about the human experience, and it all goes back to being human. It all goes back to the struggles that we deal with every single day, just trying to get through this life day to day, just trying to overcome, you know, all of the unnecessary pressure that we feel just as human beings, we shouldn't have to feel. So reggae music is what we need. Reggae music is what we use to remind ourselves that, hey, all that stuff, it don't matter. You know, woman, man, black, white. Um, we should not ever have to prove ourselves as human beings. We're part of this family. First and foremost, we should be respected as human beings. That's what reggae music is all about, is ensuring. One being a happy family. That's right, bro. You are That's right. Reggae music is a big, happy family. And so go find somebody that you used to be friends with that for some reason, maybe this politics made you guys create some sort of distance in your relationship. You need to crush that. Mm. And you need to bring them to a big mountain show. We'll see you. Just like <laughs> that. You know, before I get you out of here, what I'm going to ask for, I'm going to ask for, oh, baby, I love your way. Don't play <laughs> style before you go. <laughs> Ooh, somebody you're dead today. Every day. Yeah, yeah. Muscle sound put you in your grave, and now you're dead. <laughs> Congratulations on an excellent interview, my bro. Kino, thank you so very much for sitting down with us today. You understand? <laughs> it was great for me, man. Yeah, you took me yeah. back. You definitely let us in. Let me give you an outro and get you out of here to end this epic conversation. All right? All right, bro. Love and All respect right. every time. All the time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Muscle, and this has been another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast, and we are out. This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusichut.com. <laughs>